Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour. Today, I will interview my friend and colleague, Anjali Deva, who is a lovely trauma-based Ayurvedic practitioner. She has a school that is based on Ayurveda and mental health and social justice. And I just think that what she's doing is taking the ancient teachings and not distorting them at all, staying true to them, but bringing them into modern times and making them very relatable. One of the things that Anjali and I talk about today is this idea of, I proclaim these are the values that I want to live by, but then life gets in the way. And for many of us, we end up going months or years or decades, not living the life that we actually want. We're always saying, one day I'll get to that. And if I just manage this, maybe life will be better. And for both Anjali and I, we have decided to make like a big shift. Anjali moved from being a city girl in Los Angeles for her whole life up to the top of a mountain and has basically established her life in a natural setting. She's milking cows and riding horses and doing things that a city girl could never imagine and loving it. And it's in alignment with her values and living the Ayurveda that she teaches. I have a similar situation that the life I've established here in California isn't meeting all of my needs anymore. And it's not in alignment with all of my values. And so I've decided to take a big move and move to Minnesota. And people look at me like I'm crazy. But when I look at my life and what I really want and how I want to feel every day and the people that I want to be in connection with on a regular basis and the pace of life that I want and the life where I'm not having to consume so much, I can have a high quality of life and pay less money for that high quality of life. Like it just makes sense to me to move back to the Midwest and so I guess this episode, if nothing else, is kind of a challenge for you to think about your life, what you're doing, how long you've been doing it, if this is really what you want out of your life, and how you can make small or large changes to be more in alignment with your values and to do what you need to do so that every single moment counts, that you can say, I cherish my life it's going in the direction that I want. And, you know, for many of us, we had to think about this for many years before we made the actual change. I know for both Anjali and I, when our mothers died, it was like a really wake up call for both of us, in addition to other things that have happened in the pandemic. But it took a few years to really say, yes, I am committed to this. I'm doing this. I'm taking action. So we're not saying that you need to just run out the door and make a big change. But we are asking you to think about your life. And in that framework, using Ayurveda, yoga, yoga therapy as kind of the framework to determine what's important to you and how you want to feel each day and who you want to spend your time with. And if you want to be regulated and in balance more often, those types of questions. So I welcome you to this interview. I found it very nourishing. I hope you do too. Go get a cup of tea or go walk in nature and listen to this gentle conversation with Anjali and myself. 
Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour and Beyond. This is our way of spreading inner peace, joy, understanding, compassion, kindness, and comfort, not only to yourself, but to the world. We at the Yoga Therapy Hour and Beyond are so happy to have you listening. Now let's get started and get right into our guest today. Welcome, Anjali Deva. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Anjali, where are you joining us from? I am joining from a small town in California in the mountains called Idlewild. We are in Southern California. We're above Palm Springs, but we sit at almost 6,000 feet elevation. A beautiful place for anyone who wants to visit California. So Anjali, you and I have this common love of yoga and Ayurveda around mental health, around trauma, around joy and grief. And so we don't really have a plan today. We're just going to see what comes out of us. So you can take any question and say, no, I don't like that question. I want to answer this question since we have no plan. But I think sometimes these are the best discussions because they are very organic and they are you know, what's alive in the moment instead of kind of a pre-planned schedule that we're going to try to stick to. So I'm excited for the challenge. How about you? Up for it. I'm totally up for it. (laughs) So let's start by asking with respect to Ayurveda. First, let's define Ayurveda because maybe some of our listeners are new and they might not even know what that word means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. So Ayurveda, the word literally translates to the science or the knowledge of life. I use meaning life, Veda meaning science or knowledge. And I think about Ayurveda often when I'm defining it as a indigenous healing system from South Asia. It's been practiced for a minimum of 5,000 years. It's holistic, mind, body, and nature, and it's really rooted in this medicine of the South Asian continent. How would you say it's similar or different to traditional Chinese medicine? Because what you just said, I could see people saying, oh, is that like acupuncture? How would you say it's similar or different? Yeah, it's a great question. They're actually similar in a lot of ways. They're similar in that they are rooted in the elements. I think the difference is the application and the way in which we use the elements. So in Ayurveda, we have a theory called the doshas, which are constitutions or mind-body constitutions that help us learn more if we're like a windy person a fiery person, an earthy person, if our imbalance falls in that. And then the way that we treat is so rooted in the digestive system. We really have a strong focus in food, nutrition. Our body therapies are really different. A lot of them involve a lot of oil massage, less needles, more oil. And we also link with yoga and meditation. So there's different practices that we can bring in there as well. I love that part, you know, that the South Asian continent provided us with this whole almost medical system, but then how it links into, as you said, meditation, spirituality, coming to know who you are, why you're here, what your true self is. It's a seamless, you know, interaction between Ayurveda and yoga. Yeah, lately I've actually been defining Ayurveda as mind-body medicine that's in service of the spirit. 
Mm. I think we often hear like mind, body, spirit or mind, body medicine. But for me, Ayurveda is we take care of the body and the mind in service of having a spiritual practice or a deepening into our spiritual lives. And you said this has been around for 5,000 years. I always think that when something has lasted the test of time, that there must be something there that's working for people. Otherwise, it would have fallen away. What do you think of the 5,000 years of history? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 5,000 years is what we know because that's the written tradition. Prior to that, I think it was likely oral tradition. So my guess is that it's actually a lot older than 5,000 years. And what I love about that is that it's time tested. There's many anecdotes and you know, part of Ayurveda's history is that it wasn't allowed to be practiced robustly during the colonial rule in India, which ended in 1947, not that long ago. So a lot of Ayurveda is having a revival and it is getting researched. It's being brought back to life. And I think there can be some skepticism towards indigenous medicine because it doesn't have the same scientific rigor. But a lot of that, I think, is due to colonization. Wow. That's such an interesting take. I love that. Not <laughs> take, but a reality, I should say. Yeah. Um, the other thing about it, and I think why we maybe don't have as much research as we will one day, is that it's individualized. It's not take this pill in a double-blind randomized controlled trial and 200 people take it and we see how it affected them. I think it's a little bit, uh, the methodology of research is hard to study when you are individualizing the treatment plan to each person for what they need. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that's something that Ayurveda does really beautifully. I think that we are really good at seeing an individual constitution and saying, you know, anxiety in a person who has a lot of air in their constitution is going to manifest very differently from somebody who has a lot of fire. So we're going to treat that differently. And it doesn't mean that like our one herb, ashwagandha, is good across the board for anxiety. It really depends on that person, how strong their digestive system is, how stressed they are, what their home life is like, what environment they live in. You know, all of these play different roles in how we treat an imbalance in a person. And I love that too, that it isn't about making someone into something you want them to be rather it's treating the imbalance so that they can come back to their true nature and who they were meant to be. Yeah. And as far as I know, Ayurveda is the only system that has that difference between a Prakriti and a Vikriti. So your birth constitution and the ways you go out of balance. So even in other indigenous medicine systems that I've looked at, it seems to me, and I could be wrong, but it seems to me like that theory is really unique to Ayurveda, that we have who you are and then the ways that you go out of balance. And mm -hmm. I think that that's really fascinating. You know, it gives us a roadmap back to like, okay, who are you at your core? Who are you when you're not stressed? Who are you when you feel vibrant and alive and happy and joyful? You know, that gives us a lot of indication. And I think it, you know, it speaks to, we are already whole and complete. We may just have some layers of imbalance. And so yeah. I love that. You already have everything you need. It's just finding it again. Yeah, 100%. Or, 
you know, I mean, in some cases there might be trauma at birth or very early on. And so it might be difficult to find that. But for the majority of us, there is that innate health, you know, that we are coming back to, that we're rediscovering. Or in some cases, maybe it's new and we're just discovering it, but that's just as exciting. So let's take this into mental health, because I think you and I both have a passion for using yoga, yoga therapy, Ayurveda, to help people with their mental health, which, you know, we can get into this, that influences our physical health. But why did you choose to really focus your practice and your Ayurveda school on mental health? That's a great question. And it's multifaceted. You know, one, we don't separate body and mind in Ayurveda. So mental health is health. Two, I think that there's like a growing epidemic of mental health illness in our modern world. And so when I graduated from Ayurveda school, I spent seven years practicing Ayurveda in an integrative psychiatry clinic. And Mm -hmm. I've just always had a love for psychology, for psychiatry, for understanding how the mind works. And I think because, you know, I have two parents who though in very different ways, we're really interested in how their minds work. One studied yoga, one followed addiction. But for me, it always led to this inquiry of how do we take care of our mental health? Why is it so important? And Ayurveda really gave me a lot of answers and caring for my mental health through my digestive system. You know, what we eat impacts how we think through our lifestyle practices, how we are living every day impacts our mental state. And I was really fortunate to learn and study trauma at the same time. So for me, learning about trauma and learning about Ayurveda went together and trauma helped me better understand why as much as I wanted to apply all of these Ayurvedic practices, sometimes I couldn't. My nervous system would be so hijacked by experiences that I was having or past traumas that as much as I wanted to wake up at five and meditate and eat clean food and do all the things I couldn't. And so for me, this blending of trauma and Ayurveda, which I think Ayurveda has always had an understanding of, but the new language helps us deepen our understanding, really taught me a lot about how Ayurveda can help us heal and also where sometimes we can be limited. I love that you said that because I would guess most of the people that come to yoga therapy and or Ayurveda, we give them all of these lifestyle guidelines we give them daily practices and like you said they're not able to apply that and what i just heard you say is it's possible that because of trauma our nervous system is hijacked and therefore it makes it almost impossible to make those behavioral changes and people start to feel like a failure and they feel like well how come i can't do this but i think with the work that you're doing it's possible to go back and look at, okay, how am I hijacked? Why am I hijacked? What can I do about this autonomic nervous system hijack? What would you say about that? Yeah, a hundred percent. I teach trauma-informed Ayurveda often. And what I say is that it's not what we're doing in Ayurveda that that we need to change. It's how we're doing it. Mm -hmm. And to me, that means go slow, go simple, and follow the somatics, follow the body. So all of our principles that we're learning in Ayurveda around what we're eating, our lifestyle, our meditation, all of these practices, those still apply, but maybe they need to be applied slower, more simple, 
And we have to follow the body. If we are watching somebody and they're not breathing deeply, but we're telling them to wake up at five and change their diet, then we're missing, we're missing a cue. Mm-hmm. You know, and as practitioners, I think we want to be aware of how we can meet people where they are. And unfortunately, trauma is something that has become more prevalent and it is something that we're seeing more in our clinical practices. And for me, was a huge truth and why like I knew I had studied for years all of these practices, but I couldn't implement them. I think we see that so often. I was just talking to a potential student for our school. And I said, you know, you're going to learn this big toolbox full of things that you can use to help people. But the real art of it is to be able to choose the one or two things out of the hundred that are right for that person at this time in their life. So I said, you know, it looks so simple. It looks like not a big deal, but it is actually very skillful to figure out what that person needs. A hundred percent. And I think it's you know, I don't know the quote exactly, but something along the lines of if you can explain it to a five-year-old, you really know it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's similar with Ayurveda and yoga therapy. If we can distill our practices into something that really resonates with the person, then it's going to be much more impactful than giving them 30 different things that will probably work if they can do it. Right. So let's dig into this piece around trauma. When someone has had childhood trauma, adult onset trauma, doesn't really matter. How do you work with them to help them kind of unfreeze or come back into nervous system regulation so that they can make the behavioral changes? Because so many people just feel like a failure when they can't make those changes, but they never go back and figure out, okay, why can't I make that change? Great question. And, you know, I think as individualized as Ayurveda is, trauma is too. And Mm -hmm. so the way that we respond to trauma has a lot to do with the individual that's in front of me. But I think the primary route I always take is education, like really empowering people to understand that PTSD causes us to default to guilt and shame much more often you know, education around what's happening in our amygdala and our nervous system when we're hijacked or flooded or experiencing memories of trauma, how that impacts our digestive system. So when we are living in a state of trauma, it's sort of like if you're running from a tiger, you're not going to stop for lunch. You Mm -hmm. know, it has an impact on our digestive system, no matter who you are, what your response is, it's going to either slow down and stagnate or make your digestive system hyperactive. So we want to figure out what's going on there. And then like in the room with a client that might look like breathing together, that Mm -hmm. might look like processing a difficult experience, that might mean education around what trauma is and how it's showing up in the body. So it can look a lot of different ways, but I would say it's really learning to develop a relationship with the person that's there in front of me. For me, I think there's nothing more healing for trauma than the ability to have a space where you feel safe, where you feel seen and heard. And so as a practitioner, my work is to be as safe as I can be, be as regulated in my nervous system as I can be, and to try to meet my client where they are so that if someone's having a trauma response, I'm not talking about what foods they need to be eating. You know, I'm attuned to what's happening in the room. 
I remember working with you a few years ago and, you know, I think we had a vegetable of the month that I was going to try to you know, <laughs> explore all these new foods and proper vegetable for that season. And, and I really couldn't do it. And I kind of remember having these conversations with you that it's not that I don't want to do it, but I get home from work at five 30 and I'm exhausted because I've been out of the house for 12 hours. And the last thing I want to do is stand on my feet and, cook a vegetable in the kitchen, you know? And so, but then it spins back to, well, why are you working for 12 hours? You know? Okay. Mm -hmm. What's under that? And there's just these layers of unpeeling. And so the session that I remember didn't become about how come you can't cook a vegetable of the month. It really became about what's going on in your life, Amy. Why are you working so hard? Do you need to be working that hard? Is there anything you can do to bring more joy and to me, that felt very trauma-informed. Yeah, thank you. I remember that as well. And I think that comes up more and more for me now, especially working with folks who are, you know, BIPOC or LGBTQ and kind of thinking about how these systems make it really challenging for us to figure out what we really need and how to really take care of ourselves because we're so exhausted and so traumatized by systems in place that tell us that we're not worthy of eating a vegetable of the month, you know, that it's more important that we work 12 hours a day than cook our own food. And so a lot of the work too is also having conversations around like, okay, what is my value system and how can I start to embody that? You know, and maybe it takes me five or 10 years to get to the place that I need to be, but I'll be there on that journey with you, mm -hmm. you know? I think it's really important to also bring in the room the systems at play. It's because if something that can happen with trauma care also is that we make it so focused on the individual and then it becomes like, again, another reason to guilt or shame or turn against myself or put pressure on myself because why can't I just cook a dang vegetable? <laughs> yeah. And there's many forces at play that make it challenging for us to do so. I mean, when you say that, I realize as a middle-class white woman who's had the opportunity to get a PhD, like I have so much privilege. I don't have the systemic and structural things that are really real for people, BIPOC people, LGBTQ people. Like I can't even imagine trying to stay regulated with more pressure and stress than I already have. Yeah. Tell us about that because I think sometimes we forget that people have it even harder than we do. Not that I want to like shame or judge myself or put myself down, but just for our listeners to remember like, wow, there are some people that have additional layers of pressure and stress. Absolutely. You know, yes. And like, yes, there is all of that additional stress. And it's also our bodies are really similar. And, you know, trauma shows up in similar ways. And so, you know, my work is to acknowledge that, create education around that. But then the work with the body really isn't that dissimilar. You know, it's about how are we regulating breath? How are we thinking about foods? How are we taking pauses in our day? How are we learning to just meet where we can be? And maybe that one hour a month is like the only time that you stop and breathe for 20 minutes, but... I'm glad to offer that. And so while there are so many systemic imbalances at play that show up strongly for a lot of individuals, I think for me, what I've found to be most effective is just really providing education around that because sometimes people don't even know 
don't understand, don't have the time or space to research that themselves. They're providing education and, you know, just being the voice that's saying like, no, it's okay for you to rest. Like, yeah. It's okay for you to take a nap. Like, actually, I really want you to take a nap. And maybe nobody has ever said that to you before, but I would love for you to call in sick. I think it's hard to get permission because a lot of us are told that the harder you work, you know, the better you are. You're not a good person if you rest. You like nobody gives us permission to rest and to do self care and to pace ourselves and not be mm -hmm. so productive all of the time. Exactly. And especially for co folks of color, like we haven't seen usually previous generations who have had that privilege. So it's really difficult for us to know that that's okay. You know, and maybe it isn't okay yet, but taking a gamble on it is something that I think a lot of us are more willing to do. Yeah, absolutely. So what other areas of mental health and Ayurveda do you really have a lot of vitality and excitement around? What types <laughs> do you like to work with? You know, so I lost my mother three years ago, and so I've been on this journey of grieving and learning to heal from grief and also seeing the joy on the other side of grief. And Ayurveda has been really powerful in healing that because I had practices in place that I think kept me afloat, to be honest. You know, there were a lot of moments in my grieving process where like I didn't know up from down. I didn't know where I was in that emotion. And so knowing like, okay, I have my Dinacharya, my daily morning routine that I do every morning, you know, knowing that I go to bed at this time, knowing that these foods are good for me in this period of grieving, like really having Vata pathifying foods. So things that are warm, nourishing, soupy, stewy, root veggies that I have to have regular meals that I have to drink X amount of water. Like all of these rules that Ayurveda taught me were so helpful in this period where everything else felt totally uncertain and totally scary. And now that I'm a little bit on the other side of that process, it feels like, ah, oh, I can feel the joy and I'm so grateful for these practices that kept my body afloat while I went through this process. So in Ayurveda, in Sanskrit, the word for grief is shoka. Mm -hmm. And there's an Ayurvedic herb called Ashoka, which means without grief. And it's not an herb that everybody should take. So please don't take it if you haven't worked with a practitioner, but it helps to remove sorrow from the womb. And yeah. for bodies that have a womb or bodies that cycle, it can be a place that we tend to hold grief. And so I've been really fascinated in looking at like the hormones, the mm -hmm. heart, and our mental health in the process of grief and how all three of these can get really impacted by grief. So that's kind of been like what my mind has been thinking about lately. I also just want to name that on the other side of that is also a lot of joy. There's a lot of beauty. Let's in hold that part. That. Let's look okay. at the right <laughs> because my mom died five years ago and I remember like a six month period where I was just like, almost a ghost in my life, wandering around, not knowing where to look, what to do, just yeah. really not able to be in my life. And yeah. what I heard you say is the grounding practices of knowing that when I get up, I'm going to do these three things, or I'm going to go to bed at this time. So I have this evening routine or 
I'm really not feeling well, but I'm going to have that soup. Like, Mm -hmm. I think we underestimate how those kind of bookmarks in our day and those commitments to ourselves can get us through really hard times, not just grief, but really any hard time. Yeah. Practical and grounded. Absolutely. And I think that's why we have to practice them when we do feel resilient. You know, a lot of the times we'll practice things when we're out of balance. And then as soon as we get back, we go back to old habits. But if you practice them when you're healthy, when you go out of balance, they're in place and they keep you stable, you know, and I think that that's really important. So I took a course in Mexican traditional medicine a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and they have a term called susto, which means like a fright. So like you could have a shock or a fright, a susto, something that like kind of shocks or jolts your system. And that can happen to any of us at any time, right? And in Ayurveda, we would classify that as a vata imbalance, something that shocks or frights your system. But if we have those practices in place, it keeps us so much more grounded when those frights do happen. Mm, I love that. I was going to say, I bet we tend to get less out of balance or the intensity of our imbalance is less because we've kind of provided ourselves with this daily foundation of these routines. I think so. I definitely think so. And I think for anybody who has a daily routine, they probably know inherently like when you travel or you go camping or whatever it is, you get thrown off for a day or two, how jolting it can be to your nervous system to not have your morning walk or when you go to the bathroom or your meals at your regular time, you know, and it doesn't mean that we can't be flexible when we choose to be. But, you know, that there is some kind of structure around that to provide us safety and containment and holding. Yeah. And I think especially in these uncertain times and all that we as a society and individuals have gone through in the last couple of years with COVID and all the stuff that's been going on, I think having that container and feeling held and feeling like there's some structure to my day again, I can't underestimate how important that is. I was just talking to a golfer before this that I work with. And, you know, he was basically saying, if I don't get eight and a half hours of sleep, I'm a mess. (laughs) All my friends are getting four to six hours of sleep. I don't know how they do it. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't actually think they're doing that well. They may not realize that, but once you start getting the structures in place and you start feeling better, you Mm -hmm. notice like, wow, it feels Mm -hmm. bad four hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just a note there, that lack of sleep is an indication in every single mental illness. And we really underestimate the importance of sleep for everything that it does for us physiologically in terms of rejuvenating our body and our muscles. But also almost every indigenous system of medicine believes that dreams are really important. And Mm -hmm. if we're not having that connection to the spirit world, Of course, we're going to be tired and cranky and disconnected and, you know, it's going to show up in all of these physical and mental ailments. I think if you can sleep well, that's like 90% of it most of the time. Absolutely. So we had talked about grief and how these kind of daily routines can help you set yourself up for dealing with the hard times of life, but also getting through them. But then you started to say, And on the other side of that is this joy. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I don't know if you had this experience. Some people do, some people don't. But when I lost my mom, it really had me thinking about my own death Mm -hmm. and my relationship to my own death. And 
Pema Chodron's latest book, How We Live is How We Die, just really resonated with me of like, okay, you know, our lives are really short. They're really, really short. And if we want to live our lives the way that we, you know, want to feel fulfilled, we want to feel joyful, we want to have meaningful relationships, we want to feel like we did good while we were here, then we have to think about our deaths a little bit, in my opinion. And so this grief and this process of thinking about death in a really meaningful way has brought me to like, okay, well, I want to spend my days with a lot of joy. So now I prioritize spending time with my animals, going for a walk, connecting with friends, all the things that I was doing before, but now they have this added layer of being so meaningful because I have this real insight into, you know, the way that I want to live. I'm with you. I've had a few things in the last couple of years that have made me realize how short life is and how precious it is and that every moment counts. Like I know those are cliches, right? (laughs) But there comes a point where you realize this is it. It's not next year. It's not two years from now when we get done with that, then we'll like, this is it. Mm -hmm. This is the life. Mm -hmm. 100%. Yeah. And so for me, that has meant moving out of the city into the mountains that has meant working within my community a lot more that has meant doing a lot of trades with folks who maybe can't afford the care that i offer but can trade other things and it's meant taking horseback riding lessons and learning how to milk a cow and you know i'm a city girl i grew up in west hollywood so learning how to do all of these things that are like super cool for me because they're so foreign but really meaningful, like really getting close to nature and the natural world, the life that I want to live. I want to use you as an example, because I think so many people think, well, that's not for me. I can't go mm-hmm. and learn how to milk a cow and take horse. Right. And like, <laughs> like, that's for other people. But tell about a little bit of making that decision to leave your practice in the city, leave your home in the city, leave your friends in the city and go up on a mountain and get closer to nature and create community. Like, how did you have the bravery to do that? Yeah, you know, it was something I mulled over for probably a couple of years, one year really intensely. And I had the privilege of going on a retreat in Greece with a good friend who led an Ayurvedic retreat there. And we were on this beautiful island called Crete. And I just saw how clean the air was, how clean the water was, how happy the people were, how good the food was. And I just said, okay, I'm done. I can no longer live in a place where the air is polluted, the water isn't drinkable. I'm constantly in a state of stress. I'm paying a crazy amount of money for a house that I don't even like. (laughs) I just can't do it anymore. And so I think I hit my point and it had been coming for a couple of years, but I just hit the point. And then we came up to Idlewild and we had been rock climbing up here a little bit and really fallen in love with the mountains and the trees. And I told a friend who lived up here and we just magically fell into a house that was meant to be. And, you know, I try to be a person that's rooted in science a lot of the time, but this really was just this mystical experience of being called into a different way of life and everything lined up perfectly and it came after three incredibly hard years of grieving and there were many things that happened in that time that were challenging and 
for me, it just felt like, okay, here's a redirection of what I value. And I think sometimes those hard things in life come up to teach us what we really value and what we really want. I think that's the crux of the issue is that instead of us just kind of going along with what we've always done, we have to have that moment of clarity that I'm not even in alignment with what I say I value and cherish. Yeah. I'm not actually doing what I tell other people to do or, you know, whatever <laughs> our version of it is. Yeah. I was just managing. I was just managing symptoms and everything I was giving my clients is just managing symptoms. And I think that COVID really highlighted that and the pandemic, all of us being at home really like lifted a veil on a lot of issues. And it also gave me the privilege of being able to work remotely. So I could leave my practice in the city that I wasn't able to do prior to that. So there's also a certain level of privilege that comes with that. But, you know, also I make like half the money and that seems okay for right now. <laughs> That's what I want to say. I mean, you know, we're moving back to the Midwest from California after 25 years here, but I just have this feeling that it's going to be okay because the cost of living will be less. And I think there's a, it's almost like this trust thing where you just have decided, look, I don't want to keep holding this really heavy ball above my head. I'm going to set it down. I'm going to do all the things I need to do, but then I'm going to let go into this experience and try to live closer to nature, try to live closer to my values. Mm -hmm. If that is your value. Absolutely. And, you know, I think if all of us could scale back a little bit, it would really help us with sustainability and with climate crisis and often the greed that is associated with why we have so much imbalance in our world currently. And so for me, the practice of scaling back has been really powerful and really fun and of course, scary in moments. But I think when you really believe in something, you just have to. Yeah. And I don't think we all realize how much money we were spending to be in that lifestyle. Like yeah. even when I decided to retire from the university, I no longer had to buy nice clothes. I no longer had to stop at Starbucks. I no longer had yeah. to pay for all that gas. Even though I wasn't getting paid as much, my bills went down considerably too. I noticed that you shop at farmer's markets out there in Idlewild. And maybe all these things were trying to keep up with everybody, maybe it's okay to not have a new couple of outfits every season. 100%. Yeah. You make sacrifices. You know, I buy a lot less. I don't shop as much, but I also get to live like literally surrounded by trees. My air is clean. My water is clean. I feel rich in such a different way. And you it's know? an investment in your long-term health. I 100%. would percent. Yeah. Having an autonomic nervous system that's in balance for the next 20 years is going to be a huge investment in your health. Yeah. I mean, it's not perfect, right? Like I still have to do my practices and I still get triggered, but you know, I'm not living in pollution. I'm not living in water. I'm able to regulate more regularly. And as somebody who has a high ACE score, that's something I really have to think about. For those of us who have had lots of adverse childhood experiences, it does have an impact on our long-term health and making these decisions is important. I find that with so many people who've had trauma, that living closer to nature just helps them to regulate their nervous systems more easily. Yeah, 100%. 
I've found that to be true. There's something about like really being in connection with the cycles and, you know, through Ayurveda, we're all a nature-based science and it's all about cycles. And I talked about it for years, but now to actually live in it is a whole different thing. Yeah, it's been powerful. So if you were to give a message to our listeners about maybe three things they could do to improve their mental health. I know I'm mm-hmm. just throwing questions at you, but yeah. like three basic things that if they could give these things a try, it may help to be more regulated, to feel happier, to feel more joy, to work through the grief. Are there three things that you could share with us? Yeah, a hundred percent. Okay. Number one would be eat at a regular mealtime. Hmm. I'll add the asterisks that if you could cook that food for yourself and not eat out or not eat processed foods, that would be better, but I would still rather you eat regularly than not. So that would be number one. Mm. Number two would be get as close as you can to a natural circadian rhythm. Mm. So going to bed when it's dark, waking up just before the sunlight. And, you know, at this time of year, that becomes easier to do because the sun is coming up later and later. So you can sleep in a little bit and still wake up a little bit before the sun. So regular mealtime, circadian rhythm. The third thing is something that Claudia Welch, one of my teachers, taught me, and I love to repeat it. When life is complicated, treat simple. So the foods you eat should be simple, the relationships that you're in, the way that you take care of yourself. I think sometimes when life is complicated, we find ourselves in a frenzy and we buy a million supplements and we go see every doctor and we buy every complicated food, but just simple, stick to simple. Are you drinking enough water? Are you eating enough food? Are you getting enough sleep? When life is complicated, treat simple. I love all three of those. And I agree. I mean, For a lot of us, it's hard to remember to eat at regular intervals. Like that sounds so simple, but I've had a really busy day and I haven't had lunch yet. (laughs) (laughs) Now we got to go so you can eat. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, let's take a look at your website and just tell us how we could connect with you, what types of programs you have both for general public, but also for people wanting to study to become an Ayurvedic maybe practitioner or counselor? Sure. So there's two ways to get in touch with me. One of them is through my private practice, Rooted Rasa, and that's where I offer consultations, workshops, many different learnings and things that are generally open to the public. The Rooted Rasa is a good way to do that. You can sign up for my newsletter on there, which keeps you informed of lots of different retreats that I lead and classes. And then the second way to stay in touch with me is through Madhya Way, which is a school I founded that offers a 600-hour virtual Ayurvedic wellness counselor training. So if you have interest in studying Ayurveda, this is a really great program. It lasts about 15 months. We have weekly check-ins and classes. Everything's taught live and it's actually really a lot of fun. Mm. Yes, we've had several students that have gone through both of our programs and they love your program. Mm. Over the moon about it. (laughs) Yeah, I actually, one of our mutual students who was on this podcast, Maya, is in India right now at my doctor doing Panchakarma. And it's been so amazing to just like watch her 
go through this and just see the beauty of Ayurveda be really alive in her too. Mm. Well, then we have to talk about you and your dad, Arun Deva, almost every February, it seems. Mm-hmm. What do you guys do? Because someone might want to join you on that trip. We take a retreat to India. So this February, so February 2024, we're taking a retreat to India. We start with five days in South India at an Ayurvedic resort where you get all of these beautiful bodywork treatments, like two hours a day and amazing food. You're right on the ocean. And then we're traveling to Rajasthan in the north, and we're going to do a few different places in Rajasthan, including Jaipur, which is this like royal, amazing city, and Renthambor, which is the tiger sanctuary. So we're going on safari. So lots of different experiences within 17 days. It's been really well curated by our team. Yeah, it would be such an honor to have anybody who's listening join us. And could anyone go, someone who's not a yoga teacher or an Ayurvedic person, like just a random person that says, I've always wanted to go to India. These people seem nice and credible. Yes, a hundred percent. It's like made for people who have experience and those who are brand new to India. Last year, my partner, Alex came and it was his first time in India. He doesn't have exposure to Ayurveda or yoga other than me. And he had a blast. I saw you guys riding the elephants on the beach. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If you have a calling for India, I'd say go. It's a beautiful country and you can spend your whole life exploring it. Like it's never too soon. Well, thank you, Anjali, for speaking with us today, giving us practical things we can do. And I think maybe what we will leave here with is this idea of what are my values? What do I say I want in my life? Is my lifestyle coinciding with that? Or do I have to do some reflection and see how I could get my ideal life and my real life to kind of come closer to one another? Yeah, thank you. And thank you for inspiring that in me too. Mm, Thank you. Thank you to Anjali for sharing her heart with us today. And, you know, one thing that occurs to me in working with the clients that I work with, and even people who go through our Optimal State business development course, the hardest thing for people is to determine what they want. I know that sounds strange. I know that seems like it would be obvious, but when I work with clients one-on-one and when I coach people, getting them to really say, this is who I am. This is how I want to feel. This is how I want to spend my days. The difference I want to make in the world. That is really hard. Those are the fundamental questions of being human that philosophers have studied for millennia. And I think the reason those questions are still around is because so many people have trouble answering them. And that's what I mean when I say the hardest part is to decide what you want and who you want to be and how you want to show up. Because once you figure that out, usually you can find an action plan or find the people, the places, the things, the support that you need to go in a particular direction, however so slow. It doesn't matter if it's fast or slow, but you can start kind of working your way to whatever it is that you want in this life. But deciding to get over the trauma, to work through it, to digest it and process it, deciding, hey, these are the things that make me feel joy. Here's the direction I want to go in. That's the hard part. 
That is the hard part. So I guess the moral of the story today is take your time, slow down, breathe, be, feel, explore different life possibilities. Imagine what would it be like to move out of the city up to the top of a mountain or move back to the Midwest. These things are possible once you decide what you want and you stay on track with faith and trust and conviction that it might be slow, but you can get there. So I wish you well on this journey of deep internal self-reflection. And I hope that we all get where we want to be in terms of being in alignment with our values, feeling better more of the time, spending time with the people we love, and really bringing our lives back to a place where we feel happy to be alive most days. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Yoga Therapy Hour and Beyond. We love to give you the gift of this podcast each week, and we'd love your support. You can support us through becoming a Patreon member. You can download the Optimal State mobile app and join as a member of the mobile app community. You can give us a great rating on the platform that you listen to this podcast on and many other things that would help us. Contact us if you'd like to be of support. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to our continued relationship with you. A special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.